0: An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Punisher! Control! before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 431, submission number 842.
1: Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death. Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death, aired as part of Comic Relief's Red Nose Day Charity Appeal on the 12th of March, 1999, for four episodes, totaling 23
0: minutes. Wait, 23 minutes total or 23 minutes per installment? 23 minutes total. That's a real short quarter of a crock block. Four is a quarter of 16. That's the number of episodes of... Oh, you know all this. I'm not going to go through all of it. But 23 minutes, okay.
1: Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years, you know what Doctor Who is, but you probably don't know what Red Nose Day is. Well, didn't NBC do this in the U.S.?
0: Oh, they did did, and still do. Just not with as much success as overseas.
1: Basically, the catch-all slogan for Red Nose Day is do something funny for money. So you can probably guess where they're going with this as far as Doctor Who is concerned. They've commissioned, and they of course mean the BBC, commissioned Stephen Moppet, To write a Doctor Who story that could be a straight Doctor Who story, but funny. Not a straight parody per se, but a Doctor Who story that's funny. And let's remember, Stephen
2: Moffat at the time is the guy who made Coupling.
1: Which we did gloss over when we covered the American version a couple years ago. He was doing Coupling... With his wife, Sue Virtue, who would go on to produce this thing. As far as Doctor Who lore is concerned, I don't know if it's considered canon or not, but there are elements of this that would appear on other works in the universe. For example, a female 13th Doctor. Just not the one you're thinking of. Oh, okay but we'll get to that. In Doctor Who Magazine, issue 510, Stephen Moffat discussed how the intent of the special was to make a regular episode of Doctor Who, which happens to also be funny rather than just a blatant spoof, meaning that extreme steps were taken to have it fit with the then-existing canon. For example, the Doctor is explicitly said to be, in his ninth incarnation, which will make him a successor to Paul McGann's previously seen Eighth Doctor. He also went on to add that while it's since been disregarded, it was seen as a legitimate continuation of the show at the time. Because if you remember, the Ninth Doctor in canon is, of course, Destro from the G.I. Joe movies, Chris Eccleston. But who would they get to play the Doctor in this in? Incredibly short series. Only one person that came to mind in 1999. Somebody who just had a movie two years prior. I'm talking about Mr. Bean. I'm talking about Bowen Atkinson. React. React. Oh, Mr. Bean, how can you go wrong with that? And the thing of it is, he pretty much embodied the role he committed himself to the bit he basically played doctor who with that classic doctor who pathos which is basically a combination of childlike wonder adult snark and technical know-how he was basically playing the doctor as your favorite professor in college I'm playing his companion, Emma, who is this young girl who looks like she is straight out of a 1960s go-go club. Julia Sawala, who you would remember as Saffron, Edina's daughter, on Absolutely Fabulous. She was also the voice of Regina in Chicken Run.
2: Oh, Chicken Run. I love Chicken Run. And also, there's the Netflix sequel series that's on now. Of chicken run
1: so we have the doctor we have a companion and in its special status amongst charity productions it was twice featured on the cover of dr. who magazine which we already talked about it is the only parodic story to be covered by dr. who magazine archives And it serves as a production bridge, if not a narrative bridge, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, between the 1963 and the 2005 versions of the program, although you could argue that it serves more as a companion to the movie, because if you remember, the movie was about, I want to say, three years before the special, and the special itself used the spinning TARDIS graphic from the movie definitely a bit of a bridge there and most notable amongst the many connections between the old and the new versions is the fact that it showcases the first televised Doctor Who script by Stephen Moffat who would go on to of course be one of the main writers of the new series the executive producer from 2010 to 2017, spanning the Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi eras. The first post-production work of The Mill, which is the informal name for Technicolor Creative Studios UK Limited. The only time a woman produced an episode of the program between Verity Lambert and Susie Lickett, who would both be executive producers at one time or another. And the final performance of the longest-serving Dalek voice artist, Roy Skelton. So, a lot of a bridge between the old and the new. We have the Doctor and his companion. But there's so much more than that. We already talked about Daleks. What we did not talk about was the Master, who appears in this visage as Sir Jonathan Price, who is known... God, what isn't he known for? He has two Tonys, two Olivier Awards, a knighthood.
2: He's done it all,
1: this man. He is. He played the President of the United States in G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. He played the President. Who, Who
1: turned out to be Zartan as revealed in the sequel, G.I. Joe Retaliation. Oh, no. <laughs> He's a bad man. Rowan Atkinson, within the course of the narrative, would regenerate into Richard E. Grant, who made his film debut as Withnil in "Withnal and I, and was in Can You Ever Forgive Me? and
2: He was classic Loki in Loki season one. He was one of the many Loki variants, along with Kid Loki and our favorite, Alligator slash Crocodile Loki. I wasn't sure if he was an alligator or a crocodile. I want to think he's a crocodile, but whatever.
1: In this special, Richard E. Grant is billed as the Quite Handsome Doctor. <laughs> Richard E. Grant would regenerate into... Jim Broadbent, who is billed as the Shy Doctor. And among Jim Broadbent's many roles, he has BAFTAs, Golden Globes, a nomination for a Primetime Emmy. He played Horace Slughorn in the Harry Potter series, Diggory Kirk in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, and he was Samuel Gruber in the Paddington series.
2: All the Paddington series. Everybody loves the Paddington series.
1: Got me turned on to orange marmalade.
2: Mike, would you like to have orange marmalade with Paddington Bear? Who doesn't
0: love orange marmalade? That's delicious.
1: Jim Broadbent would regenerate into. <laughs> I can't say this was a straight face. Jim Broadbent would regenerate into Hugh Grant. <laughs> Who is billed as the
2: Handsome Doctor. And let's be honest, we all know about you, Grant. And we all know about a certain thing he did, like, almost 30 years ago. He went downtown, if you know what I mean. Good everybody!
1: <laughs> he plays the same role in every movie. I, I, I'm so terribly sorry for being so incredibly handsome. I am so sorry.
2: You know, funny enough, you know what I just bought at Target today?
1: Why did you just buy at Target today? I'm afraid to ask, but. I just
2: bought the Blu ray of the Dungeons and Dragons movie with Chris Pine. Oh, that was awesome. And he's in that
1: movie. You're talking about the one with Chris Pine in it, right?
2: Yes. I loved that movie. movie. Yes. But not only that, guys, but to keep it current, Hugh Grant is in the new Wonka movie with Timothy Chalamet. And you know what he's playing? I know what he's playing. Mike, you want to take a guess?
0: Someone who's nice and someone who's sexy?
2: (laughs) No, that's Timothy
1: Chalamet. He's playing a nice and sexy Well, But the thing is, Timothy
0: Chalamet is playing, is in Wonka. That's the... He plays Wonka,
1: a nice and sexy Willy Wonka. This is the thing that got everybody all shook. Okay, Mike, take the guess.
2: Take a guess. That's who he's playing.
0: And, And this is in Wonka? Yes. And this is, uh, you said Hugh Grant? Yes. Don't say he's playing the assistant Snodgrass or whatever his name is. No. No. Even even better. No. Like I said, everybody got all shook about this. Don't say he's playing the grandfather to Charlie Bucket. No, No, No. 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 The other way. Think small, Mike. Think small. He's not playing an Oompa Loompa.
1: Yes! He's playing an Oompa Loompa. And it got the internet all shook.
2: And I'm going to be honest, the CGI on Hugh Grant as the little Oompa Loompa is hilarious. It's terrible! That's what I mean. It's hilariously
1: terrible. Here's this classically trained British thespian. What is he playing? A motion capture little person.
2: Hey, still better than Marlon Wayans in Little Man. Is it really? Yes. We're not
1: done yet. Oh, we're not done yet? Because Hugh Grant would regenerate, remember I teased this earlier, into Joanna Lumley.
2: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Patsy from... Absolutely fabulous. How
2: terrific is that? The Doctor regenerated from Hugh Grant to Joanna Lumley. That's
1: amazing. Talking about New Avengers. Talking about the Wolf of Wall Street. But, but, yeah, let's talk about Absolutely Fabulous a little bit more because I'm looking at her and Julia Sawala. Remember, Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders play a pair of perpetually drunk best friends. And Julius Zawala is uh, Jennifer Saunders' constantly put-upon daughter. If it weren't for the fact that they were actors, <laughs> and I would know that they were actors, I'd be like, oh god, this is so awkward. But even more awkward than the casting is the story, which I have here thanks to the fine folks at the TARDIS wiki at Fandom. Strap yourself in. We're going on a ride through time and space. Part 1. The Master pursues the Doctor in his TARDIS, maniacally bellowing that the Doctor's certain death awaits him on Zastan Four. The Doctor, from his own TARDIS, replies that the Master really ought to learn to turn off his speaker before he blabs his entire plan, and that he wants to meet him on the planet Tercerus to give him an important piece of news. The doctor and his assistant, Emma, landed the empty castle Tercerus. He explains that the Tercerans were a kindly, peace-loving race, but shunned and abhorred due to their communicating solely through precisely modulated gastrointestinal emissions. They talked by farting.
2: Oh...
1: And they destroyed themselves after they discovered fire. Think about that. The master pins them to a wall with energy pulses, and having arrived a century earlier to bribe the castle's architect, prepares to subject them to the spikes of doom. Instead, they find themselves relaxing in the sofa of reasonable comfort the doctor having anticipated this and bribing the architect first. However, the master then declares that he anticipated this anticipation and bribed the architect even earlier and drops a giant block on their heads. The doctor and Emma emerge from a door in the hollow block with the doctor saying he arrived even earlier. Emma interrupts to prompt the doctor to announce what he has come to say. Emma and the doctor are in love. And the Doctor plans to retire from traveling through time and space, having saved every planet in the universe a minimum of 27 times, and settle down in domestic bliss. Now, this was before, or after, I guess? The timeline's all screwy, but, you know, this was before the Doctor and River Song decided to, you know, boo up, or... I guess it was after. Time and space be crazy, y'all. Horrified and nauseated by this prospect, the Master announces that he will go back in time, buy the Architect an expensive dinner, and persuade him to place a lever next to where he is standing and a trapdoor where the Doctor and Emma are standing. He prepares to plunge them into the vast and disgusting sewers of Tercerus, warning them to prepare themselves for 500 miles of fear and feces. Ew. Which leads us to part two When the master pulls said lever, the trapdoor opens under his own feet The doctor having already bought the architect an expensive dinner As they go to leave, the front doors burst open and the master appears, significantly aged Having spent 312 years climbing through the sewers, locating his TARDIS and traveling back in time to the current day Accompanying him are the Daleks, the only creatures not repulsed by the Master's smell because Daleks have no noses.
2: Oh, that's right. They don't. It's just metal.
1: It's just metal, but, you know, inside the metal, it's just this gigantic blob with an eye in it. The Master boasts that his body has been augmented by Dalek technology. He now has, in place of his right hand, a plunger. Of course, we wouldn't know what the plungers actually do until that one episode in Season 2 when the guy who was working for Torchwood got his head plunged. But we just found
2: out in the most recent Doctor Who Children and Eden scene that the reason the Daleks have a plunger is because the Doctor like ran in on the creation of the Daleks and broke something And he had to find something and was like, oh, here you go.
1: Emma quickly figures out that he doesn't know what the plunger can do. The Daleks prepare to exterminate them, but the Master decides he will kill them with his bare hands. He charges forward, but the Doctor steps aside, and the Master plunges straight through the trapdoor again. He comes in again, another 312 years older. The Daleks pursue the Doctor and Emma through the numerous and very similar-looking corridors, but one Dalek accidentally bumps into the Master, causing him to fall through the trapdoor yet again. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. An extremely old Master then walks into view, complaining about having spent a grand total of 936 years in a sewer. The Doctor and Emma find what they believe to be the way out of the castle, but in fact it turns out to be a room full of Daleks. Which leads us to part three. The Daleks have captured the Doctor and Emma rather than exterminating them, shocker, and tied them to chairs, much to Emma's confusion. They always want to exterminate us, but they always change their mind at the last second. They've also restored the Master to his original proper age and augmented him further to have Dalek sensor bumps on his chest. Oh. The Master insists that these are etheric beam locators and they're very firm, but the Doctor mocks him over the sensor's resemblance to breasts. The Master announces that in exchange he has given the Daleks the secret to controlling a zektronic energy beam which will give them power over the entire universe in only minutes the master charges up the beam but the dalek supreme whispers to the doctor that they plan to exterminate the master after the beam is active rather than share the power with him the doctor realizes that both he and the master speak fluent terseran so he farts a warning to him oh my The Master speaks the message out loud as he receives it, though without the Daleks hearing, but Emma inadvertently ruins the plan by breaking wind, causing the Master to suddenly start shouting gibberish, which does alert the Daleks to what's going on. This gives the Daleks the excuse they need to get rid of the Master, but they accidentally end up shooting both the Doctor and the Zectronic generator instead. The overloading generator is beyond the Master's capabilities to repair, only the Doctor can fix it. But the Doctor lays dying, farting, to Emma, I love you, before seemingly dying. Emma is distraught as his apparent death, but the Master reassures her that the Doctor is in his ninth body and has many more lives as he begins to regenerate. Which leads us to the final part. The result of the Doctor's regeneration is a quite handsome, if a bit vain, persona. Not Colin Baker. He confirms that Emma is still very much interested in marrying him and prepares to leave with her, but the Daleks beg the Doctor to help deactivate the zectronic Beam Generator in exchange for his life, to which he agrees as a perfect way to finish his... career. However, an explosion causes him to regenerate, again, this time into... A shy persona, very nervous around girls, and the master with his oddly-placed etheric beam locators, and Emma is visibly disheartened by this new version, finding him nowhere near as attractive as his two predecessors. He goes to try again to deactivate the beam, with another burst of energy causing him to regenerate again. The new doctor, very handsome and charming indeed, is rather embarrassed. I'm rather embarrassed. I'm so good looking, and I'm so British, and I'm so embarrassed that I'm really sorry. Is rather embarrassed that he wasted three bodies in under a minute simply because he forgot to unplug the generator first. The crisis appears to be over, and Emma is quite looking forward to getting to know this new doctor when a residual burst of pure zectronic energy knocks him down. With his electronic energy preventing his regeneration, the Doctor appears to die permanently. The Master and the Daleks resolve to permanently forswear evil to honor the Doctor's sacrifice. Yet to everyone's amazement, the Doctor's features begin to change and he regenerates, this time into a very buxom woman. Emma calls the wedding off due to the Doctor being, in a very literal sense... No longer the man she fell in love with. The new doctor is quite excited to discover that her sonic screwdriver has three... (laughs) What?
2: (laughs) He can't even say it. What What does the sonic screwdriver have? (laughs) I'm a professional! A professional! This is like your winds of whoopee right here.
1: The new Doctor is quite excited to discover that her sonic screwdriver has three settings. But then she and the Master lock eyes. The two express their mutual attraction and go off together, the Master laughing maniacally again. Oh yeah, baby! (laughs) And that's the story!
2: (laughs) So the Doctor and the Master are now in love.
1: Some would argue that they've been in love for quite a while now. Oh, yeah. As far as Doctor Who stories, it is a Doctor Who story played straight, and it also happens to be an accidentally funny episode. And By the way, you can watch it for yourself. It's on YouTube on uh, Comic Relief's official YouTube channel. There are a whole lot of callbacks to Doctor Who adventures and also Doctor Who being insanely cheap to produce. One of the reasons the Doctor is planning retirement from saving the known universe on a weekly basis, he's tired of endlessly running around those rock quarries. And when Emma is running with the Doctor to try and escape the Master, the Doctor and Emma spend a long time running through the exact same corridor over and over while she says, these corridors all look the same. A few mythology callbacks, uh, according to TV Tropes. The sound and the visual effects used for regeneration most closely resemble those used by the first Doctor's regeneration into the second. And when the 12th Doctor dies, when Hugh Grant dies and suddenly regenerates, Roger Lim's incidental music for the fifth Doctor's regeneration in the Caves of Antrazani plays, and later on, as Joanna Lumley and the Master walk away, the regeneration music from Logopolis is played, which I can't even begin to unpack. When it appears as though the Doctor's death won't lead into regeneration, Emma says that the Doctor was never cruel and never cowardly. Oh, that carries over. I believe Stephen Moffat also wrote The Day of the Doctor, which that was a key line in that story. The special itself was released on VHS, but per the extent of our research, it was never released on DVD. It's no longer available to buy. It can be found on YouTube, as we said before. The BBC has not ruled out a future DVD release, but won't even consider it until all the canon episodes get DVDs first. And, as we said a couple weeks ago, a good chunk of 97 of them are still missing. Even that may take a while. And as originally broadcast, the credits were followed immediately by a short message from Rowan Atkinson, still in character, as the Ninth Doctor, appealing directly to the audience to ring the Comic Relief phone line. This clip, along with some minutes worth of curse-relevant links shown throughout the night, were not included in the home video release, nor have they been released to YouTube. You can still watch that clip if you know where to look. But basically, it's the Doctor saying, when I want to save the world, I use a phone box, but you can do it from home. 0345 460 460. The producers actually wanted the episode scored with music taken from Dudley Simpson's soundtrack from the fourth Doctor era, like everything else, if you saw the opening of that, because the opening was basically the Doctor Who open with Tom Baker's bass cut out. Simpson did not keep any of the original tapes. They looked to use parts of Jeffrey Bergen's scores from Terror of the Zygons and the Seeds of Doom, while Bergen actually did have the tapes, they were unusable. They were deteriorated in storage, and there wasn't time to get them digitally remastered. And the draft script, as it was written, featured potential suggestions of who could have played the other Doctors with Colin Firth instead of Richard E. Grant, Mel Smith from Princess Bride and National Lampoon's European Vacation instead of Jim Broadbent, a lost geeky doctor played by Lee Evans, and Robson Green of some sort of crime drama that I can't remember instead of Hugh Grant. But if you ask me, I think they made the right call. So there you have it. Comic Relief gave us Red Nose Day. Still gives us Red Nose Day, all over the world even. But in 1999, for the BBC, it gave us this incredibly hilarious thing on TV. And that'll do it for not just this episode, but also for our 60th anniversary celebration of Doctor Who. You know, barring uh, an instant reaction from either Greg or myself or both of us for the Star Beast, which, as of this recording, is right now on Disney Plus. You can shut off this podcast and then go over to Disney Plus and watch it. Yes.
2: Okay. That's terrific. Mike, do we have the Mash Demon Highwood Squares Hour report for this week?
0: But of course we do. It's time for This Weekend Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour History! Alright, we're up to week five of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. And among your panelists this week, airing the last week of November of 1983 and the first couple of days of December of 1983, we have Audrey Landers. Nothing for Audrey Landers. Okay. Fred Travelina Marky Post, Arsenio Hall, Sean Stevens, Jim Stahl, Blake Clark, one of our favorites, going back to the water boy. And first appearance, not her last, hold me back, Greg, knee dribbles. Boo! The opinion of that boo is that of Greg and Greg Only that does not represent the management of It Was a Thing on TV, AKA me. So now week five, this is cosmetic, but uh, they use new index cards. It's not really a big thing. I know Greg really wants to talk about one thing. There's a contestant this week by the name of Maury Gersh. He would be on the syndicated card sharks about three years later. And he was best known for an answer regarding who's Madonna, I believe. It was a question about Madonna. He's like, I don't know who Madonna is. And I think he even got into some biblical explanation about, you know, who he thought Madonna was, not the, the singer, mind you. And in 1986, Madonna would have been like everything, the biggest star on earth, probably next to me, Michael Jackson. We also do have our first undefeated champion on the series, Bill Carroll. He left after five games with $26,825. And also this week, in terms of gameplay, we had maybe the biggest shellacking in Match Game Hollywood Squares history. If not the biggest, definitely the second biggest, where the champion won, not joking, like $1,300 to $25, or $1,400 to $25. So that means a contestant literally got one question right.
2: Though in terms of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour contestants, she was the Nathaniel Hackett of Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour contestants.
0: Well, that's this week in Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour history. Back to Chico to close the episode.
1: Well, that'll do it for us. But remember, you can always go to our website at itwasthingontv.com where you can listen to the 430 episodes that preceded this episode, including two years worth of Thanksgiving parades last week. Really good stuff there. Aside from that, we got great bonuses, including mini-sodes, live shows, extended versions, previous episodes. Instant reactions, the whole works. And also, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, Mastodon over at It Was a Thing on TV, except for Facebook, where we're at It Was a Thing on TV podcast. If you're looking for us on Mastodon, you must search for us at It Was a Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible. And we are on YouTube, where you can like and subscribe to our channel, and don't forget to hit the notification bell so you can be informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up on the podcast next time. We're out of Doctor Who, Greg. Yes. What else is there?
2: Well, like I said, on Wednesday, we're going to celebrate a special... 100th birthday celebration for this journalist who hasn't been with us in 40 years but left a spectacular legacy that we just have to talk about on this podcast.
1: And we will talk about that legendary journalist as he celebrates the 100th anniversary of his birth next time, right here on It Was a Thing on TV. For Mike, for Greg, I am Chico. Thank you ever so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Wow! Uh, I,
0: I, uh, oh, this is, my, this is terribly awkward, but I, 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 I wanted to tell you something, but I, I, I seem to be so charmingly befuddled. Ah, that Hugh Grant is so handsome. Oh, is that how it is? Come here, you home-wrecking
2: Don't do it, Dad! He's bigger than you! And...